Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team, worship team, for leading us this morning. It's been great to be together in the Lord's house already. We're grateful for the opportunity to be together, and we often like to think about those who don't have the same privileges that we have of being able to gather in a place like this and relative safety and security, so we are very grateful indeed for this opportunity to be together. Um, here today. If you're visiting here with us at Sunrise, we are so glad that you're here. We like to say that we try to be pretty easy to figure out here at Sunrise. We teach the Bible. We go through the Bible, what we call expositionally, which means that we just take a small text of scripture at a time and we work our way through that in our sermon time. And so that brings us this morning to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we are picking our way through the gospel of Luke. Luke is one of four gospel accounts, and when we say a gospel account, what we are talking about is the four books within the Bible. The Bible's a big book that has a lot of smaller books within it, and so the gospel of Luke is one of the four accounts of the life of Christ. And then the rest of the New Testament is really unpacking the teachings of Christ, the establishment of Christ's church, and then telling us about the return of Christ. That's the New Testament in a nutshell. So this morning, we're jumping back into Luke chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 20. You know, I'm kind of fascinated by what comes on TV, and not just what comes on TV, but the types of shows that people are interested in. It's really kind of says something about our culture, just what we find interesting. A few years ago, there was a rash of these shows that came out that profiled people that did really hard and dangerous things. We saw a few of these, these deadliest jobs types of shows. There was one called Hard to Kill, which profiled different people who do incredibly dangerous things, sometimes for not a lot of money, but put their lives on the line. There was one that was hugely popular, maybe it's still going, I don't know, called Deadliest Catch. Some of you probably saw that, Discovery Show. And it profiles these Alaskan crab fishermen And they're up in the Bering Sea out of Alaska. And with 20-foot tide swings, over 20-foot tide swings, sometimes 30-foot swells out in the the Bering Sea up there, not to mention the cold. I love the water. I love being out on the water. I love to fish, but they can keep that one. Watching those guys with sledgehammers that are breaking ice off the boat so the boat doesn't get too heavy and capsize. It just looks incredibly dangerous, incredibly hard. And did I mention incredibly cold? I don't like cold, so that would not be for me. If we did a first century version of Deadliest Jobs, I think one that would actually make the list would be a prophet of God who tells the truth. (laughs) If you're a prophet of God who actually had the moral fortitude and the backbone to tell the truth, you were likely putting your life on the line. Jesus talks about this, and we'll get to it later in the Gospel of Luke. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And here we have one of those prophets. And although Luke doesn't record specifically his martyrdom, in this section, we know how John the Baptist's story ends. He tells the truth. He prepares the way for the Messiah. He calls out immorality. And eventually, it cost him his head, quite literally, We read about that story over in other gospel accounts. This morning, we're going to dig into this issue of repentance one more time. We talked about this a little bit last week, but we have some tributaries I want to explore a little bit more and continue looking at John's message of repentance. And just a little bit of context, if you're new with us, 
or perhaps don't remember exactly where we've been in the Gospel of Luke. Luke focuses early on on two what's called the infancy narratives. So you have two stories that are being told. One is about the birth of Jesus that's prophesied and then comes to fulfillment. And the second is about the birth of John, later known, we know him as John the Baptist, in order to distinguish him from John the evangelist who wrote the Gospel of John one of Jesus's apostles. And so this is John the baptizer, John the one who would be baptizing out at the Jordan River. And so we have alternating stories. There's stories about John and story about Jesus, and they go back and forth and back and forth. And then we come to the ministry then of John the Baptist in John chapter 3. And Luke doesn't give us a ton of information, but it's important information about John's ministry. And so that's what we see. So John is out, and he's a bit of an eccentric character, and he's styled in the really formula of an Elijah type of prophet in the Old Testament. If you ever look through the Old Testament and some of the prophets, we're actually going to start a minor prophet study here in our equipping hour coming up very soon, looking, just doing a profile of different minor prophets. They're not minor because their message is unimportant. They're just minor because the books are shorter. So that's why they're called minor prophets. If you've ever wondered why why do we call them major prophets, minor prophets, it's just a length issue. That's all it is. So the very important message and what we'll see is the prophets, some of these guys were pretty eccentric. They were very sarcastic sometimes. They were very confrontational of the people and of the culture. And so what we have is years of silence after the prophets had been speaking and prophesying in Israel and calling Israel to repentance. We have no voice. There's nothing for about 400 years or so. The prophetic voice is gone. And then all of a sudden, this new character shows up, John, the baptizer, And John is going to preach a gospel of repentance. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he does it with a bang by calling people snakes, by telling them to repent, by calling out their wicked business dealings, calling out the rampant injustice that was going on in the first century. And so that's where we pick up our story here today. I want to back up and read from verse 7. This will set the tone for the interaction that we see with the people today. Verse 7 of, John, of Luke chapter 3. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone or threats by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand 
to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he had done, added this to them all. And he locked up John in prison. And we know how the story ends from there. John eventually has his head cut off because of his confrontation of the immorality of this wicked leader, Herod, the Tetrarch. So let's talk a little bit more about this idea of repentance. I mentioned this definition last week, but I want to get it in our minds once again and draw some distinctions that I think are going to be important for us. When I say repentance, definition that one of my college professors gave us, made us memorize, and it's stuck in my head since, repentance is a change in attitude that leads to a change in behavior. A change in attitude that leads to a change in behavior. And I think both parts of this are important. You can say anything, but what you really think and what's really in your heart is ultimately exposed by your actions, by what you do. And so that's what we see. As we walk through this, we're going to see three points. The truth about repentance, the truth about judgment, and the truth about morality. And I started to label this a how-to on how to get yourself in trouble in the culture because this will do it. It's exactly what happened with John. The truth about repentance, truth about judgment, and then the truth about morality and specifically about the evil deeds and marriage that John speaks of there. When we talk about repentance, John said, bear the fruits that are in keeping with repentance. That is, bear the fruits that are consistent with repentance. We see this fruit, crop, agrarian type of language and vocabulary often in the Bible. That's because it was very natural for them. They grew things all the time, and you probably couldn't walk hardly anywhere without seeing some form of a garden. They were raising flocks and Publix just wasn't around the corner. Most of us have very little connection with our food, right? And just the idea that you can get pretty much any fruit or vegetable you want year-round, unthinkable to the developing world even now. And in the first century, it's just unthinkable. You couldn't do that. It didn't work that way. And so they, they had very much a connection. They understood the agrarian vocabulary and language. And so they would have gotten this very well, and we can get it as well bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There's a root visible on the screen here, and then there's fruit that comes out. And we've got to get these right. We can't just attach fruit to the tree. As Paul Tripp loves to give the illustration in talking about biblical counseling, he said if he had an apple tree in his front yard that wasn't bearing fruit, and he said, I'm going to fix this, goes to the store, gets a bushel of apples and a roll of duct tape, goes out to the front yard, sticks a bunch of apples on the tree and says, there, I fixed it. Well, you didn't fix anything. All you did was attach some fruits to a tree that are going to rot and they're going to go away. That's not how it works. And so what do we do when we, as people even who claim to be Christ followers, or maybe that's not your situation this morning, what do you do when you hold up the mirror to your life and say, I don't see the fruit of repentance in my own heart and life? Well, the answer is not stick a bunch of fruit on the branches. The answer is there's something wrong with the roots. And it really could be one of three things. 
The tree could be dead, just not producing fruit. The tree could be very unhealthy and not producing fruit. Or it just might not be the kind of tree that you think it is. It might be a totally different kind of tree. And that's a very significant issue for us to think through as well. When we talk about this idea of repentance, we're talking about a connection between the fruit and the root. There has to be more to it than just saying a thing. We talk sometimes about confession and repentance. Maybe some of you who grew up in a Catholic tradition grew up with the penance, with going through uh, penance and confession and the sacrament of confession. And I'll just speak anecdotally here for a moment. My friends that uh, do come out of Catholic background, what they've often told me is that there was very little true repentance, change of heart going on. It was more check a box. I got to do the thing to get the thing. And so confession simply means to agree with. That's what the word means. We have confessions of faith. We're confessing. We believe this is true. Well, that's not the same thing as repenting and saying, I want change at the deepest level of my heart, and it's going to produce a different fruit. Very important for us to get this. I want to show you this in another text, and then we'll come back to Luke in just a moment. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible with you, just jump over there, hold your finger in Luke. We're not going to be here too long, but I think this is a really significant passage for dealing with this issue. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8. The context here, Paul has written a series of letters to the Corinthian church, and there was a letter in between what we have as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, at least one letter, And it's sometimes referred to as the severe letter. It's not in our Bible, but we know because he references here and other places as well that there was more correspondence, which shouldn't be shocking to anyone. He was there for about a year and a half. Paul had established his church. And so he had written to them and he dealt with them in a very severe and significant way because of their sin. And so they had responded, some had responded well to this rebuke that Paul had given them. Verse 8 For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. So I I know I made you feel bad for pointing out your sin. I don't regret it. He says, though I did regret it, for I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a little while. So what is he doing there? He's saying, I didn't love the fact that I made you feel terrible, but I do love the fact that I pointed out your sin and you responded rightly. All right, I'm sorry, but I'm really not sorry that I pointed out your sin. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not that you were grieved. I, I didn't take any joy in this, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So what's the difference? Godly grief versus worldly grief? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The question comes up sometimes, how do you know if somebody has truly repented? And many times we want a checklist. Well, do these four things, and then we'll know you're really repentant. 
while it might be helpful in a practical way to think through some issues like that, the answer really, I think, is how do you know when somebody's truly repentant of something? You'll know. <laughs> you'll, you'll know. But look, did, you, did you hear the description of that? What indignation. They, they wanted to do everything they could to make the situation right. If somebody comes to you and they have wronged you in some significant way, and they say, forgive me, I want to, I've, I've wronged you in this way, and I confess this to you, and they, they're really seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. And you say, yes, I, I'll forgive you. I think you, sh- I think you should do this to make the situation right. Oh, no, 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 this is it. Like, <laughs> I did my thing. I spoke the words. Like, you're responsible now to forgive me. I'm walking away. If there's no follow-through, if there's no whatever I have to do to make the situation right, then it just doesn't seem like, and each situation is very different, so we have to be careful with that. But that could just be a worldly sorrow, a worldly grief, a more I, I'm sorry I got caught than it is I'm sorry that I've offended a holy God and broken a relationship with one of God's image bearers. Very different thing. So this is the nature, what it looks like to truly repent. So let's go back to the Gospel of Luke then. So with that in mind, with a little bit of a theological understanding of what's going on with this issue of repentance, let's come back to John. John's crowd is shocked. They've come out to be baptized. And John promptly calls them, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. Well, that's something. Somebody came up after the service and said, we want to be baptized. You snake, I'm not baptizing you. It's confrontational because he knew these people and he knew that they were not ones who had truly repented. So what would that require? What would that look like in this situation? He gives a few examples and you could play this out to a number of different professions and situations. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Verse 10, he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share is to share with one who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. So there should be rampant generosity amongst the Christian community. If you're truly repentant, if you truly love the Lord, if you truly feel sorry for your sin, it should have an impact in the way that you treat others, in the mercy that you show to the people around you. If it's not having any impact in your life, you have a root problem. There is something going on. Notice this uh, tunic. It's an undergarment, uh, like a long shirt that men and women both would have worn. Says, and you probably have seen something similar to this if you're familiar at all with Middle Eastern dress. In some places, it hasn't changed all that much from the first century. So that's the first one. And then the second one, he says, if you have food, you should share it. I pointed out last week, it doesn't say if you have extra food. It just says if you have food, share it. We're these types of people. Generosity. What's the nature of true repentance? Generous. You share. Hold your possessions with an open hand. Let the Lord use you to meet needs for other people. He also says, not just that, there should be honesty about you. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Said, teacher, what shall we do? And so we have these different groups of people. And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. So the tax collectors are to also practice honesty. 
This is probably, and in some translations, I don't know what everyone is reading, I think most of you probably have an ESV, that's what I preach from, an English Standard Version. Uh, the word could also be toll, and so the way it would work is, in the first century, the Romans were famous for their roads, you probably know that, even if you haven't been in history for a minute, you probably know that Romans kind of did roads, that was their deal amongst other things, but they built some pretty cool stuff too. If you ever get a chance to head over there, it's pretty impressive. Like we build stuff, they got stuff that's 2,000 years old that still works. Like it's pretty amazing. So the roads, they had these roads and the, obviously people would have to get around, they would, have, they would trade their goods. And so you had a section of road and a contractor basically could bid on a section of road to collect tolls. So, believe it or not, Sun Pass, we're not the first ones to do toll roads. I wish we were the last, but we're not the first ones to do toll roads. And so, this could refer, likely refers to a group of people, and they would bid a particular section, and then they, they basically charge people to come through their section. They would have sort of a toll booth, um, if you will, uh, back in the first century. And so, what would happen is they're out there in the middle of nowhere, and they have a numbers advantage. A little group comes in, they want to pass the road. You've got, your, you've got your people there, and you charge them some exorbitant amount. Well, what are you going to do? Call the Better Business Bureau out there, you know, on your cell phone? There's nothing you can do. And so you're, you're at the mercy of these people. And so they would extort people. And it was so bad in the first century that these toll tax collectors were not allowed to give testimony in court that's the kind of reputation that they had. I want to make some jokes about occupations and dishonesty, but I just thought I should keep myself out of trouble today. So I'm not going to do that. Just insert whatever joke in your mind you want to with that. This is how bad it was. And so it gives a little bit of insight too into Jesus calling a tax collector and having dinner with tax collectors. Jesus, how dare you do this? They had a terrible reputation and so what's interesting about this one and the next one as well is he doesn't say to the tax collector, the toll collector here, you shouldn't be a toll collector because those guys are really messed up and dishonest. He says, no, you need to treat that vocation with honor and dignity and integrity and honesty as well. We need Christians in every sector of life doing good, honest work writing good, honest contracts, doing good, honest business, making good, honest things. That is the fruit of repentance. A heart that's changed by the Lord won't allow you to take advantage of other human beings. It just won't. John knows this. He's telling them this. You can't just go get baptized and think you're okay now. That's not how this works. And I'm just afraid that some people still think that way today. Maybe not with baptism in particular. Maybe they think if I give a little bit, throw a little extra in the plate, that doesn't work anymore because we don't really pass the plate. It's a, we don't pass the plate anymore. Put a little in the box in the back, give online. It doesn't work that way. You can't just do the thing and think you're okay. It's not how it works. Next, so generosity, honesty. We'll call this one meekness, verse 14. Soldiers also asked him, Roman soldiers, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So soldiers, if you come from a military background, 
you're familiar with this, where all of us have been around military, especially living here where we live, uh, there's something intimidating about a group of soldiers that walk into a place armed, isn't there? You've probably been in that atmosphere uh, before. I remember I've told you the story about us wandering off in Russia one time in the middle of the winter, and we wandered behind a gate that we shouldn't have been behind, and uh, there were three or four soldiers, I don't remember exactly, uh, they came around the corner, and they're, they're just loaded. Uh, you know, they got their AKs on their shoulder, and there's us Americans standing there. Um, and, you know, if they had asked me for 20 bucks right then, gladly. <laughs> like, okay, it, and I can go. I'm good. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would have, actually, way more than that I would have paid to walk away from that situation. And so it's always been that way. When, you, when you're in a position where you, where you have all the leverage, all the power, there's no accountability. Again, we're not in, a, not in a world where there's a chance that a camera somewhere on the building is catching what's going on, and you can bring this to court. There's none of that. There's these soldiers, and they have, really, they could be judge and jury in some situations, and they could extort money out of people, and this happened. This happened. Or even worse than just extorting money. Don't extort money for anyone, and don't make false accusations hey, I saw you try to steal that thing over there. No, I didn't. 20 bucks, and I'll say you didn't do it. What are you going to do? And it puts people in terrible positions. So don't act that way. Don't be that way. Paul in Ephesians says something very similar along the lines of what we're talking about here. We've been going through Ephesians, just finishing that up in our equipping hour session. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. But rather, so there's a put off, don't steal, a put on, and there's a heart change here. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's a good reason for you to go to work tomorrow, so that you can work hard, so that you can have something to share. This is the nature of the new life in Christ. If the root has been changed by Christ, this is the type of fruit that comes out. All right, generosity, honesty, meekness. Next, this is the truth he tells them about repentance. Let's look at the truth he tells them about judgment. We won't spend too much time on these last two points as we will celebrate the Lord's table in just a moment. And these are themes that are introduced here and they're gonna be teased out over the rest of the Gospel of Luke. So there's much, much more to say about these than we'll say this morning. But I do at least want to get us started and mention it. The truth about judgment. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So they think that John could be the Christ. Maybe he's the Messiah. And just remember when we read Christ, that's not a last name. We refer to Jesus Christ sometimes as if it was a first name, last name. He's Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't really do last names so much. Jesus of the city that you were from, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited, predicted, prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. So they think John might be the Christ because he has this powerful ministry. People are coming out. They're flocking out to hear him. He's speaking in a way that's powerful. It's compelling. People are starting to follow him. He has disciples. And so they think the Messiah is here. And John is very quick to say, no, no, no. I'm not the Messiah. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. 
But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So, guys, I'm not even close. The, the, the true Messiah is on the way. He's the Messiah, not me. As we studied the Gospel of John years ago at sunrise, one of the lines that we used to try to describe the ministry of John is he was a man to be looked through, not to. Looked through John to the Messiah, and he understood his role. And that's why later he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And the context is, hey, John, some of, some of your followers are going to this new guy, Jesus. What do you think of that? He's like, perfect. It's exactly the way it's supposed to be. John understands his role. He's not the Christ. But he previews something that's going to become a theme in Jesus' ministry. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Huh, fire. There's a lot of Old Testament underpinnings to his use of this term. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there is a judgment coming. There's going to be a separation coming when the Messiah comes, and his winnowing fork is out and active. Now, a winnowing fork, again, I think some of the agrarian language and vocabulary is a little bit lost on us because I don't know what y'all did yesterday, but probably nobody had their winnowing fork out. I was probably the closest being at our men's retreat. There were all kinds of interesting things happening up there, but I don't recall any winnowing forks um, exactly. So a little bit foreign uh, to us. So let's talk about the analogy, which would have been familiar to the first century. A winnowing fork was basically like a pitchfork. So just imagine a pitchfork, which may be a little bit more familiar. And they would take the grain and they would throw it up in the air. And as they did that, the wheat and the chaff would separate out, almost like a, imagine like a a peanut shell, like a peanut husk. And if you're out on a windy day and you kind of rub the peanut in in your fingers and the chaff blows away, the little skin on the peanut blows away. That's kind of the image. And so they would take it and throw it up, just throw it up on the threshing floor, and then the bad stuff would blow away, and, or you could collect it and burn it, um, but the good stuff stayed. And so the image is that Jesus is going to come, and there's a heavenly fire baptism that's going to come down, and there's going to be a separation that's going to be drawn, his winnowing fork. So imagine as Jesus is going around Israel, he is tossing Every time he teaches, he is tossing things up in the air. The whole Middle East is getting upset at this point. And when he goes into a town and he starts healing and he starts doing things on the Sabbath that they don't want him to do, and he starts confronting structures that they don't want him to confront, and he starts having conversations with people that they don't think he should be having conversations with, and he goes to dinner with people that they don't think he should be having dinner with, he is tossing things up in the air and the chaff is blowing around. That is what he is doing. And John's previewing his ministry. This coming day of spirit and fire. And again, this is full of Old Testament imagery. The prophets talked often like this. This fire and spirit that's coming in the ministry of Christ. Lastly, let's finish it out looking at how John finally put the nail in his own coffin. Verse 18. So with many other exhortations, He preached good news to the people. John is preaching the good news to the people. But Herod, 
he didn't appreciate this, the Tetrarch. The area had been divided into different regions. Herod is one of those rulers. Not exactly, but sort of like a governor of this area. Who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he has done. Now, this is, uh, this is really an interesting little phrase here. He's warned because of, uh, he's warned Herod because of Herodias, his brother's wife. Now, what he doesn't tell you here, and we can piece together from the other gospel accounts, is that she is actually his niece as well, which means she was married to Philip. Herodias was married to Philip, who happens to be her uncle, Right, you follow the family tree here? Happens to be her uncle. And so now she's married to another of her uncles. All right? Everybody got that? It's bad. It's a mess. So he calls this out. He stole his brother's wife, stole Philip, Herodias, and John the Baptist calls him out for this. It's immoral and it's wrong. And John calls him out. I do think it's interesting that people have been getting in trouble for millennia for calling out immoral marriages. Nothing new under the sun. This is exactly what happens in the first century, and it still happens today. We talked about Romans 13 at our men's retreat this weekend, and one of those passages has to do with the government and our submission to the authority underneath the government, and we talked about what does that mean? How do we lead in that? How do we understand that? And I think the Bible says what it says. It says submit to the government, Romans 13, 1. And we don't need to try to make it say anything it doesn't say because it just very clearly says it. But I think we can also, as R.C. Sproul used to say, we can be prophetic informants as well. We can call out immorality, and we should, where we see it. We don't try to do the government's job, but we can tell the government to do their job. That's okay for us. In fact, a responsibility for us. John did. And it was very costly for him to do that. Well, this morning we have the privilege of celebrating communion 